Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Ed Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. This week, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Tobias Carlyle, founder and managing director of Acquirers Funds, where he manages the firm's deep value strategy as a portfolio manager. Tobias is also the author of the Acquirers Multiple, Concentrated Investing, Deep Value, and Quantitative Value. In this interview, we discuss the two ways returns to deep value are realized, how the billionaire contrarians of deep value beat the market, and how you can value stocks using the acquirer's multiple. Enjoy. Hi, Tobias. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Ed. Where are you calling from today? I'm in Los Angeles in California, the United States of America. It's about uh, 9 a.m. on a Friday morning. It's <laughs> the afternoon here, so we're about 4 p.m. It's crazy, but the time difference is actually quite substantial on that side. Of- we're just about to go into end of daylight saving, so you might have gone before us, so it might make the, the gap larger than it normally is. Yeah, yeah. Just um, last weekend, I think it was, yeah. And if you, you always lived over there. It's not the traditional place where sort of investment managers go, is it? Or No, it's not the financial center of the state. It's not the investment center, but I, I, get, I get terrible FOMO. When I go to um, New York and I talk to all of the managers there and I, uh, I hear all of the ideas and I hear how much money they're raising and all the stuff they're doing, I get real, um, I get that need to do something. So I just find it's much better for me. I just, I live in this little surfing community. Yeah. I mean, that sounds good to me. Yeah. I think, is it Meb Faber? Meb Faber also lives, I don't know if you know Meb Faber, but he lives. Yeah. Meb's about uh, five minutes down the road from me. Okay, cool. We had him on a podcast a while ago. Um, that was really interesting as well. Yeah, great. Yeah, similar sort of thing. He, he does a lot of the, uh, he goes surfing as well, I think. Yeah, he like does. This. He's on Manhattan Beach. I'm a little bit further south in uh, the South Bay, in uh, Palos Verdes, Lenata Bay. I've never been, so I've, it's somewhere I've, I've always wanted to go. Obviously, been hard the last couple of years, but um, definitely would, would like to do that in the future. Um, I wanted to start, I just actually, it was, a, a tweet came in that I read from uh, you today and I just thought it was a nice place to start the interview. You obviously read an article and your comment on it was, a bargain you can't ignore. Small cap stocks are trading at their second biggest discount in 20 years. I thought um, maybe you could just quickly touch on that as a sort of something interesting to touch on at the start of the interview. Yeah, I manage a small cap fund in addition to a, a mid cap and large cap fund. And so it's, it's an area that I watch fairly closely and I'm a value manager as well. And we're going to get into the detail of that. But the small cap fund, we only took that over in June last year. And the reason was that it was, sorry, it wasn't a small cap fund when we took it over. When we took it over, it was a, it was a large cap fund and, and we had it. Um, we changed the strategy to a small cap because at the time I thought that it was one of the best opportunity sets that I had seen in um, sort of two decades of doing this. And the reason was that the valuations had got so depressed that you think about a very simple valuation, there are essentially two pools of return. One is the dividend yield that you get from the company. And then there's the, the what, what capital is not paid out that is reinvested gives you some growth. And you can calculate a return without any change in the multiple. So this is like no assumptions about these companies getting more expensive. And I just noted that on the yield and the reinvestment growth, small cap stocks were set to, I thought, massively outperform every other asset class, particularly value, you know, small cap value. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was pushing really hard to get the fund transitioned over as fast as we could. And then we got it done in about October and just by, you know, I think it was late October, October 26, something like that. And just through great fortune, that was sort of very close to the bottom of what had been sort of a 10-year slump in small and micro cap stocks. And they had this, you know, they had this pretty famous reopening bounce last year that made it kind of got through until April or May and then it kind of petered out. And it's 
it's run back again now. So what that article was saying is if you look back over the last two decades, there are two periods um, where it has been this wide. And the last one was you know, just last year, funnily enough. And then it's sort of not been as cheap as this through those last two decades. So it's still sort of, it's kind of amazingly, it's kind of gone back to where it was. Largely that is driven by how expensive the mid and large cap, the S&P 500 is, but there's also undervaluation in, in the small and micro. Yeah, very interesting. What sort of um, areas, sectors are you, are you seeing in those sort of micro stocks down there, just to give it a bit more context for people? Oil companies and stuff like this? Or? Well, my investment strategy is not so much to try to buy the commodity type businesses. When I can buy better businesses, I try to do that. And so the, the, the concentration in the fund has tended to be, there's a lot of industrial, there's some financial. So that, that's sort of tended to be where the portfolio has gone. Yeah, interesting. I mean, yeah, I know financial has done very, very well, um, like you said. And I think we can segue now into how you actually you know, run your funds. So you obviously run it off this um, deep value sort of strategy. Can you explain to people what that is? So that value is a very broad church. And at one end, you might have this, you know, if you think about again, how you do a valuation, there's two components to it. This sort of where the company is currently earning. So let's put aside the fact that you could look at the asset value or the breakup value. And that that is one sort of very um, conservative valuation. And then you would look at sort of what it's earning now. That's what uh, Bruce Greenwald, who's the very famous Columbia professor who's just retired, he would say that's the earnings power value. And then you have this growth value. And the growth part of the value is, has historically been the most difficult part to get right because growth is very difficult to forecast. And there's a very small subset of very good businesses that it's appropriate to value on that growth basis. So all deep value is saying is we're not going to pay up for the growth or we're not going to pay up for much growth. We're going to take a fairly conservative approach to growth. We're going to concentrate more on the earning power or breakout value of the business. So I think I would have said Buffett, I would have said had previously been at this more aggressive growthy end, but I think that there's this new iteration of value that sort of emerged over the last five years that I think is even more aggressive again than he is. I would say that what he has, what his great skill has been to buy these very good growthy businesses, but he's only ever paid deep value prices for them. And so that's, so I'm sort of trying to, you know, with my, with my limited skill set, I'm trying to do something similar, but I'm compensating for the fact that I don't have that kind of level of genius by trying to pay slightly lower prices. Yeah. And you talk about how there's two ways um, returns sort of deep value are realized. One is mean reversion and, and the other one is narrowing of the discount valuation. Can you quickly just touch on those both? The two ideas are basically your returns come from the movement in the business and then the uh, the discount to the valuation closing. And, and they would say, um, you shouldn't be trying to get too much of your return from mean reversion because that's essentially assuming that the next person who comes along is going to pay a higher price than you are for the same business. You know, that's like, it's a, it's a small microcosm of the greater fool theory. I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. And there is quite a lot of evidence for mean reversion, which is just that people do tend to pay higher prices for better stuff over time. But there's mean reversion in stock prices and mean reversion in businesses. So businesses will go through this capital cycle where you know, they'll be over-invested for a period of time. And as a result, they'll get pretty anemic returns because there's just too much competition. And then on the other side of that, there'll be periods of under-investment. Once they have those anemic returns for a while, people sort of competitors pull out of the market. There's less competition. There's less capital in the market as it's capital starved and the cycle turns. It tends to get very good returns at that point. So I'm always trying to not lose money um, by the multiple going against me. And I would never rely on the multiple going with me, but I can then separate the multiple out and the valuation out and then look at what the underlying business is doing and try to generate the return from reinvestment or yield in the underlying business. So that's essentially the two ways, looking at the performance of the business and then looking at how other investors treat the valuation over time. And um, that sort of is linked to this acquirer's multiple. Is that, is that right? Uh, how do those sort of work together? So I um, was an attorney. 
I was a lawyer in Australia. I was, I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in Australia, and then I got transferred to San Francisco. So I worked in tech M&A. Unfortunately, the period when I was working in tech M&A was 2004, 5, 6 in San Francisco, and there just wasn't very much happening on the tech scene. I probably left right before it all exploded, and, and I wouldn't be a deep value investor having this conversation with you if I'd just been there for a little bit longer. But the, the idea was basically when I started working was early 2000s. It was just after the tech wreck, .com 1.0 bust. And there had been a lot of these, um, we didn't know what to call them at the time. We now call them activists, but at the time, they were sort of corporate raiders from the 80s. They were people who had been famous in the 80s, and they came back out, and they were trying to get control of these little companies that had listed with no business. But, you know, this was very common to have a, they really had no way of generating revenue. They just had kind of an idea to do something. They had a domain, basically, and some idea to do something, and they'd raised a lot of money but they were burning cash, which then became toxic in the bust. And they traded well down below the cash on their balance sheet, even though they were losing lots of money. What these guys would do would get control, stop the business, and then either liquidate the company and pay out the cash or use that as a vehicle to go and do that again and again and again in this sort of daisy chain of companies. I just thought it was a fascinating approach. I was working in a pretty big firm. So we were on the activist defense side for the most part. I was never really acting for the activists, but I just thought it was a, it was a fascinating approach. And I thought if the market ever gets cheap enough again that these opportunities emerge, I'm going to try and do some of this stuff. And so that was you know, early 2000s. And then it became like a commodity super cycle, real estate kind of market. And um, eventually that busted 2007, 8, 9. And in 2008, I set up this little website where I was tracking these liquidation value positions. It was called greenback.com. It still exists. I don't really update it much anymore, but it's still out there. And um, they all did fairly well. And the prototypical position for me was something that was sitting below liquidation value where an activist had filed a 13D, which is a notice in the States that you're required to file when you hold more than 5% of the equity mm -hmm. in business. And it says that you have some intention to do something. It's not a passive holding. You have some intention to either take the company over or to you know, cause it to do something. And so these filings indicate that the fund is going to try to you know, resolve the undervaluation. And they all did fairly well those positions, but they disappeared pretty quickly. Um, 2008, nine, there was a big bounce in the market and they all kind of went away. And I, I realized that it wasn't a strategy that I could do for the long term because they're like cicadas. They come out every seven years or something like that or whatever it is. In recession. And in recessions, right. And so I, I tried to modify it a little bit and that I had remembered, I used to go into the university library, the the business library and read all these old um, filings and old journal articles to see if I could find something interesting in there. And I had found this, like, this guy had, I, I can't for the life of me remember who it was, but I can't find this article either because this was like when they used to print it out and put it in a ring binder. I don't know if they're available electronically. You know, that's how, how old this stuff is. And this was an article from like 1986 or 87. And they were talking about that phenomenon when the leverage buyout firms um, were trying to take over companies in the 80s before that bust. And he had described this multiple that they used to assess the takeover value as the acquirer's multiple. He was trying to explain enterprise value to EBITDA or enterprise value to EBIT, enterprise value to operating earnings. And so I just had that idea in my mind and I thought that's interesting because it takes some of the same principles that the liquidation value stuff does. It's still looking at a balance sheet value. You're looking at a holistic valuation. You're looking at what this business would be worth to an acquirer who can manipulate the, you know, they can change the mix of debt and equity. And what they're interested in is really what cash is available for paying down debt or doing other things. And that's, you know, any of those operating income type measures like EBITDA or EBIT, which, whichever you prefer. And so I went back and I did some research. I had a, a friend who was um, doing his PhD at the Booth School of Business, which is the old Chicago School of Business. It's kind of regarded as the best quantitative school in the States. And so we built this back tester and we went and found every bit of academic and industry research that we could dig up 
including stuff that had been around like since the Great Depression about assessing the creditworthiness of companies and the likelihood of financial distress. So, you know, like um, Altman Z-score and, uh, and these sort of older older measures that were sort of quantitative in nature for finding these statistical um, earnings manipulation and fraud and all of these sort of things and business quality and valuation. And we assessed them all individually to see whether they had ever worked because it, you know, they were somewhat unsophisticated about quantitative analysis in the 20s. I think that we have much more sophisticated tools now, but we're no more sophisticated about this stuff. But they, they didn't have the sophisticated tools. They were doing sort of like just a linear regression, largely by hand, least squares method of like working out which are the, uh, the independent variables that are sort of impacting this thing. So you get all of these weird coefficients in these um, in these little uh, algorithms that they describe, you know, like there's no reason why it would be 0.26 times this factor, but that's what they decided was the appropriate thing at the time. So we went back and tested it again. You know, did this in fact work at the time or was this just some fluke in the data? Um, does this thing continue to work now? Are there any modifications that we would like to make to it that make it better reflect reality? So we went and did that. We modified some of the tools, put them all together into a back tester into this um, model. And the result of that research study was a book called Quantitative Value that came out in 2012. And so we, we go through, we sort of detail all of the fundamental approaches to value investment or that you could do in a quantitative sense to assess the health or strength of a business, you know, how high quality the balance sheet of the business is and, and valuation. And then that book was then turned into an ETF so I, I wrote another book after that, which was called Deep Value, which was about um, this interesting phenomenon that I had seen, that the thing where the activists came out and they found these things that were sort of undervalued and not optically great businesses, but if you just tweaked a few things in there, you could potentially turn them into very good businesses. And when that happens, they get this, um, they have this sort of step change in valuation. It's this catalyzing event to make the market recognize that they are, in fact, pretty good businesses. They've just been not mismanaged, just hidden inside something else that for whatever reason, there's too much cash in the balance sheet, there's too much debt, the capital structure's too loose, that they're not making money at this point in the cycle, whatever it is. So I wrote that book just describing how that phenomenon works. And that was where I introduced the concept of the acquirer's multiple. And basically, I've, I've used that just to describe in very broad terms what I'm seeking to achieve and how that's distinct from what other value investors might be doing in the market. Yeah. So, so this acquirer's multiple metric is something that was around in the 80s. They used in these scenarios in recessions to find companies that were worth more, you know, their stock was less uh, valuable than what their balance sheet was or something like that. Is that the right, along the right, right lines? And now you're using it yourself to find companies that have the potential to unlock value with small changes in their business model? So I would say it wasn't necessarily about, it just didn't have to be in a recession. It was just any time. If you find something that is a, there's a little bit more to it than just the ratio, but essentially the less you pay for those operating earnings, the better your performance is likely to be. And sometimes it's disguised by the fact that the balance sheet can have there might just be a lot of cash on there or some assets that you can readily turn into cash. And so the, the business might be optically expensive. The company might be optically expensive at first blush, but once you do a little bit more analysis, you can see that if somebody was to sort of do something in there, you could potentially, it could become quite valuable. So that's largely my approach. I find things that they are still pretty good businesses. They might just be hidden inside something that, that needs something to happen for that to sort of be revealed. Yeah. Okay. And so um, you wrote another book on this, uh, The Acquirer's Multiple, How the Billionaire Contrarians of Deep Value Beat the Market. Um, can you give us a quick sort of synopsis of that and why you wrote it? Yeah, it's kind of a cringy uh, little uh, subtitle to it. But basically, I was talking to my, my family and they were, my family are all reasonably intelligent, professional kind of people, but they're not stock market people at all. And I would talk about this stuff to them and they would just say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, can you just like explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old? I was like, well, that's actually a pretty interesting challenge. I don't know. You know, they say you don't really understand something until you can explain it to a five-year-old. As a person who now has an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old, I can tell you that I obviously don't understand it because I couldn't explain it to any of them. But I went and researched how do you write at 
a level that helps people to understand. So it's kind of interesting. There's some research into this because they found in the Second World War, you know, all of the, the manuals for like the ships and things like that written in the US for the Navy were written by engineers and enlisted men couldn't really understand what was written in these manuals. So they went and they broke down the language to work out how they could explain things more readily. And so there are these um, tools for, for doing that stuff. So I went and found those tools and I wrote um, The Acquirer's Multiple with the idea that it should be written to a fifth grade reading level. So that just means short words and short sentences. And um, it should be able to be read in a few hours. So it's a very quick read. And it just explains in very broad terms, in very simple terms, what I'm trying to do in the market, which is to buy these things that I'm trying to explain why I would buy something that doesn't. You know, why am I not buying Tesla now? Why do I prefer, say, Lockheed Martin or something like that? And the, the, the reason is that it just sort of explains in, in those sort of very broad terms. If you're, a, if you're a professional investor and you read that book, you're not going to learn anything. It's not sufficiently high level for you. But if you're someone who is reasonably intelligent, but not necessarily a stock market person, it will explain to you from first principles what a value investor and what a deep value investor is trying to achieve. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Can you take us through that example? Just like a layman's approach to it. So why are you buying Lockheed and not Tesla? If you look at uh, the underlying business in Tesla, while it's growing reasonably quickly, I think it was like, it might have, it might have done 50 or 100% in the last... Yeah, I think it was. Which is... It's quite a substantial business. It's, I think its market cap at the moment is about $1.2 trillion. Mm-hmm. And um, it might have made, it, its revenues might be $50 billion. And so if I do a valuation on Tesla, I can come out with, uh, on very optimistic assumptions, I can get to about $150 per share, where I think it's trading around $1,200 per share today. So there's like a trillion dollars in market capitalization that is water, basically, in that thing. It's just not worth $1.2 trillion. If you're going to get a return from that business um, that would approximate the market return, or maybe even a little bit better than that because it's a little bit riskier, you need to be paying about one-fifth or one-sixth of where it's currently trading. If you look at Lockheed Martin, on the other hand, it's trading, it's got a market capitalization around, I think it's $92 billion. It has about $8 billion in net debt, so the EV, the enterprise value there, um, which is the enterprise value for folks who don't know, that's market capitalization, and it includes debt because an acquirer of a business has to be able to uh, pay down the debt or accommodate the debt. That is a, a genuine price that you're paying, even though you're not necessarily paying it. It's think, you could think about if you buy a house, you might take out a mortgage on the house and the equity portion that you put up is your deposit, which might only be 20% of the house in the state. So that 20% is the market cap, but the full price of the house includes the mortgage that you have to take on and pay down over 30 years. So this analysis, always I always include the, the debt in my analysis. And then there are other debt-like things like minority interest in businesses, preference shares, uh, and so on, and they're like convertible notes. There's there's a whole myriad of things that can be hiding in there that are real costs that you have to pay. And then on the other hand, I look at what this thing is earning. So Lockheed Martin um, will earn about, I think it's three hundred and thirty dollars a share. Last time I looked, um, revenues are about two hundred and thirty seven dollars a share. And if you for, you look all the way down to the to the free cash flow line, I think it might be free cash flow on the order of about $18 a share expected through to the end of this year. And then it's going to pay out uh, a little bit over $10, maybe $10.50 as a dividend. So the dividend yield on it is about 3.3% or something. This is all off the top of my head. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I have to go check these numbers, but this is roughly the the case. And so then they're reinvesting, um, you know, eight plus dollars in that business. And that business, it's a pretty good business. It's got reasonably high returns on equity. So this is the amount that the company can reinvest. The rate that the company can reinvest at generates 
returns in the order of the return on equity is like 90%, but the return on invested capital is something like 16, 17, 18%, which is still a very good return in this market. So I think that if I was to look at what sort of return you're likely to get from Lockheed Martin, I estimate with the dividend plus the reinvestment rate without any change in the multiple, the return is something like mid-teens percent per year from here. Whereas I think that the return for the Tesla is sort of negative from here. If you're assuming like a, I don't know how long everybody's timeline is, but I look about five years out and it's sort of a negative return in my sort of valuation here. So that's the difference between the two. I know that Musk is a god genius who runs, uh, who puts spaceships, you know, towards Mars and uh, he's a very bright guy. He's a great entrepreneur. But, you know, at some point, reality and gravity and, you know, mathematics and logic kind of catch up a little bit and the, the returns will be lower, much, much lower from here in my estimation. I can see that. And when you're estimating your sort of um, the value you're going to get from uh, these investments, you're combining this sort of dividend yield and potential capital appreciation of the stock price. I'm very mechanical about it. You know, I'm thinking about what money can they reinvest in this business? What return will they get? What happens if they do that for two or three or five years? Where does that get you? And what am I paying for that business that is going to do that? And can I? You know, you can you can have an you can have an absolutely phenomenal business, but if you pay too much money for it, it's very hard to to get a return. And you, you can great evidence for that is in 2000. You know, it was everybody thinks of it as a kind of a dot com boom. Yeah. And it was a dot com boom, but that was a fairly localized part of the market. There actually wasn't that much market capitalization. Really, where the, the bubble was, was in some of these stocks like Microsoft and General Electric and Walmart, like these big kind of companies. It was a little bit more like this, you know, that the nifty 50 from the 70s, where there was just, there were all of these companies, and it's a little bit like the scenario that we have now, where there are some companies that are just, they're regarded as being so good that you can pay any price for them and you'll still earn a return. But what happened from 2000 to really 2015 is the underlying businesses of those companies continued to be phenomenal businesses and they continued to grow very rapidly and do very well. But the stock prices didn't follow yeah. the businesses because they were so expensive. And it was really 15 years of going sideways with a whole lot of volatility in between too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I read that about Microsoft the other day. It's crazy how it's changed over time. But it was, I think it was one of the most valuable companies for way back when. And then it was, yeah, like you said, 15 years or so where it was sideways tracking basically. Right. Um, and it, not until recently that it's, it's sort of broken out again. Well, the valuation caught up to the to the price, but then we've gone to this. I think we're in this scenario now. I don't think it's egregiously expensive, but I do think it's kind of it is expensive, and it's it's sort of it's going to be hard to see the same returns that we've seen over the last five years over the next sort of five or ten. Yeah, no, no, I get that. And um, just coming back to uh, the acquirer's multiple book, how do billionaire contrarians invest? I don't know. I don't think we've covered that yet. And it'd just be interesting to know how you know Warren Buffett. Uh, and others got started, et cetera. So I was talking in there particularly about David Einhorn, uh, Carl Icahn, and, and Buffett to some to some respect, because Buffett started out as a liquidation investor. Like he would he would get control of these things and liquidate them. And he had this guy called Harry Bottle. There's a famous story where he goes into the, I think it's Dempster Mill or it's one of the other early sort of liquidation place. And he just, he walked into the warehouse and he drew a line on the ground and he said, everything on the other side of this line has to be sold. And so this Harry Bottle went and sold all of this stuff and kind of turned that business around. But Dempster Mill, I, I'm, I'm kind of mixing these stories up a little bit, but he did it successfully with one and then he tried to do it with another one. And the, there was it was in a little town and the town folk were upset about the fact that understandably about their business was going to be liquidated. And they ran this campaign to have Buffett stopped. And I think it's sort of, he didn't like being cast in that role. And so he transitioned a little bit to trying to find these better businesses. That's never bothered Carl Icahn. What he has tended to do is to sort of buy these things and liquidate them. So when I say he's a contrarian, he would buy these things where they look moribund, they look like there's no value in them. And then he would sort of extract value from these things by liquidating and so on. 
Einhorn's a little bit the same. Einhorn started out in his first, he raised like $600,000 from friends and family in about 1996. And he put the positions into these, they're all um, sub-liquidation value. And I think I worked out that he had put on nine or 10 positions and basically nine of them didn't work, but one of them went up 10 times or 20 times or something like that as this liquidation play. And that gave him this first year spectacular returns. You can look at his portfolio now. It's very much a sort of portfolio after my own heart in the sense that he tries to buy these. Um, it's kind of hard to, you know, they're not great businesses or they're not recognized as being great businesses. And um, from 1996 to 2007, he beat the market by 24.5% a year. Since 2007, he's underperformed by 7 something percent. A year. It's just been a really rough market for that kind of contrarian style. But that's kind of the idea. You're trying to find something that's particularly not a great business, but potentially disguised by something else going on around it. And the best example of it is Apple. Apple sort of has this cycle where when the iPhone, you know, people get concerned about will the uptake on the new iPhone be as good as it has always been? And so in 2013, it got very, very cheap and it had all this cash accumulating on its balance sheet. And so Einhorn had this idea that he called iPrefs. So there were supposed to be preference shares that would pay out some of the cash on the balance sheet. And he said, you know, the argument for the tech guys is we need this cash because we're reinvesting at high rates and we need to keep on, we can do more with this cash than you as the investor can do. And he said, isn't the fact that you've built up all this cash on your balance sheet evidence of the fact that that's not the case? And so you should pay that out. And Icon had this sort of similarly uh, direct approach, but you know, in typical Icon fashion, it was much more direct. And he just said, just buy back a whole lot of stock. And they were initially resistant to that, but they did eventually listen to him and they instituted the biggest buyback in absolute dollar terms that the world had ever seen at that point, bought back a gigantic amount of, of stock. And the stock price leapt from 2013. Interestingly enough, the same thing happened in 2016 when it got too cheap again, and it happened again in 2019. And I'm, I'm almost maybe we're sort of past the point where our folks sort of understand that the, the iPhone cycle continues to work. But it's entirely possible that next year or whenever the next iPhone cycle comes, that this Apple will get too cheap and yeah. it'll be available there for the sort of more contrarians among us to buy it. <laughs> and am I right in saying these people are with we're, we're talking about? Is this are these the activist hedge funds that you talk about? Basically, looking for acquisitions. Yeah, I think I don't think many of them are actually looking for acquisitions. I think they like to say that because I think that it gives them the you know like I can't. It kind of gives him that there's that threat that if you don't do what I'm going to say, I'll come in and take it over and you'll lose your job. In reality, I don't think that he would want to do that at all. Now, although he does, he does have this uh, I can't industrial partners or IEL something. That's the ticker. And it, it owns these businesses they have taken over and then and put into this into this structure. That's the threat. I think really what they do is they it's a it's a convenient mechanism to get a big position and then you write this letter and attach it to your 13B filing and it gets a whole lot of press attention and it draws attention to the undervaluation and the fact that you have a plan to do something about that undervaluation. And in many instances, that's enough that the company is sort of compelled to do something to sort of, um, a, you know, mollify the market a little bit, and and that often leads to some reasonably good performance as a result. Interesting. So you said they actually use this this um, thing where over five percent, if they own over five percent, it has to show up in the in the filings and in the press. Actually, you're keeping an eye on this, and it get it can get picked up, um, and the stories promote this undervaluation or. It was very popular. In the early 2000s, activism was very hot. And there was a guy, uh, Robert Chapman III, who ran this hedge fund. He was actually, he was based in Los Angeles as well. And he discovered that if you wrote a nasty letter and you attached it to the 13D filing, that drew all of the attention. And then Dan Loeb and some of the other guys who are probably a little bit better known adopted that strategy as well. And so it became... There was this little phenomenon in the market for a while where people would attack these companies. And interestingly, it coincided with the last time that small and micro was as cheap as it is now. And I vividly remember these articles from the time 
um, written by Piper Jaffrey, which was this um, investment bank. This is like 1998, 1999, 2001. And they wrote these articles that were called uh, Darwin's Darlings and the Endangered Species Report. And the idea was that you could find these companies that had these phenomenal metrics that were growing very rapidly, generating heaps of cash and run by families who were pretty stable and doing all the right stuff. And they traded at these huge discounts to the rest of the market. And they said, basically, there's been this fundamental shift in um, the way that people invest through indexes. And it means these things will be forgotten forever and they'll never be able to get that valuation back. And they said, probably what's going to happen is leverage buyout teams are going to go in and take these things private. What instead happened was that activists came in and did a lot of these things in the public markets. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw another period of kind of financial operators coming in and approaching these small and micro cap companies, which is why I'm sort of eager to be in them. But I also think that phenomenon is going to occur in the, interestingly, in the mid cap market. Mid cap is sort of my favorite part of the market. So this is my, my bigger fund, um, the acquirer's fund. And the ticker for that is Zig. It operates in the mid-cap market. Mid-cap is, nobody really thinks about mid-cap, uh, but it's a, it's a very interesting part of the market because it has the return characteristics of small and micro, but it has the volatility of large cap. And so when you put those things together, you get better re- risk-reward um, ratio. So it has very good return characteristics. In addition to that, and, and probably the reason why, is that it's where private equity tends to be quite active and they're big enough entities that they have professional managers in there who sort of know what they're doing. So if they get out of line, you know, activists come in and do something or the professional manager rather than sort of being a, an entrepreneur who started a business and listed a business and cont- continues to run it. So I, it's my favorite part of the market to hunt in and that's where a lot of my portfolio tends to be concentrated in, in Zig. And so how do you screen for these Stocks. What's your process for finding them and assessing whether or not you know prioritizing the ones that are most interesting? Essentially, so I have I have a quantitative approach to it. I do screen. I have a model and it values these companies, and then it values them where they currently are, and then it looks at what could happen if um, someone was to sort of make some of these changes to the business, and then we're looking for where's the biggest discount, where is the highest likelihood of something happening and we try to focus the portfolio in those areas it's not simply a a quantitative screen after this quantitative screen is constructed then i use my i i I do this forensic diligence on the companies which was sort of essentially what this is what junior lawyers do uh in mergers and acquisitions transactions they send you into the data room and you get access to all of these different company documents and you go through and you try to find the reason why the company is too cheap. Mm -hmm. So I do that externally now, but I go through their filings and I try to find, is there some, is there something hiding in the footnotes? Is there some liability that we don't know about? Some contingent liability that's out there that we don't know about? You know, so like a a, court case or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That justifies this big discount devaluation. Then if I can't find something like that, then and you know, maybe, and sometimes very rarely, but sometimes you might find something that's that's very good, like some real estate that they hold that's undervalued that um, it just doesn't show up because it's carried at the purchase price, and they've they've owned it for thirty years, so it's worth much much more than than what it looks like, and um, that, and then that rolls up into the portfolio. Yeah, interesting. And you had um, I read that you get particularly interested sometimes in the financial statements, uh, the notes and management's discussion. Do you recommend people should be looking at sort of thing and how they're how they're talking about the business? How do you pull insight from that? You're looking for the thing that they're worried about. It's hard because you, you know they they give you twenty different uh, risk factors because they're trying. To, the lawyers say to them, you know, if you don't list a risk factor and that's the thing that sinks this company, then people are going to sue you and say that you didn't oh, really? warn them about it. So they have to be quite upfront with it. All. Well, they wrote this very long laundry list of stuff and, and that's kind of unhelpful because it hides in it the thing that you really need to be worried about. I'm reading for what is their general sense of their industry because they're all, you, you really are beholden to the industry. When This is why I, I'm a believer in, in 
industry concentration in the portfolio, sort of up to a limit. It's a, it is a double-edged sword. If you're wrong about the industry, you know, iron ore from 2009 until pretty recently, any of those kind of commodities have been awful businesses to be in. But um, most of the time, when the industry gets cheap, you want to have a little bit more of a concentration in that industry, and that's how you generate um, pretty good returns. But it needs to be a little bit of care. But I'm I'm looking at how are they talking about their industry? How are they talking about their business? What are they talking about? What what is the sort of topic that is the thing that seems to be the thing that they're focused on most? Because that's probably a pretty good indication of what is about to come. And so sometimes they're very you know the home builders were all recently were all falling over themselves to talk about how big their order books were and how much work they could do if they could get hold of the raw materials. And so I've got, I hold several home builders because housing's been underinvested in, in the States. You can pull up any sort of Edgar. Um, that's the, uh, the Federal Reserve has this data website called Edgar and they have, sorry, that's, that's the SEC. The Federal Reserve is called uh, Alfred Fred. And you can go through and you can find all these data series and you can look at the number of homes that have been built. Uh, it's this sawtooth pattern where there's a bust and everybody stops building. Then there's, it builds back up to a boom and then there's another bust and it builds back up to a boom. But the last bust was so big that the recovery was very, very shallow. So they've underbuilt homes in the States. And so there's some huge number of homes that need to be built to sort of catch up to where the population growth has got to. And the home builders will be a beneficiary of that. So that's, that's the sort of thing that I'm looking for, some sort of clue as to where, the, where we are in the cycle. And outside of the home builders, are there any other industries that are sort of ticking the boxes for you at the moment? Financials mm-hmm. really are the one because they were, you know, they were right there hand in hand with the home builders when the last yeah, collapse yeah. occurred and everybody is just terrified of financials still. And the, the interest rate environment has made it tough for them to earn anything. So they all look like they're under earning. And then in addition to that, they've had all these like Basel um, derived, Basel II type uh, obligations put on them. And then in addition to that, even more recently, there have been a suspension of buybacks and other things like that because they've been concerned about the pandemic. So what has happened is that they have these very, very good balance sheets now. And they are slightly earning because of the the shape of the term structure for interest rates. But it's easy to see how that could shift and they could earn more and they'll probably release some of that excess capital. And when that happens, I think that financials will do better than they have historically. And I sort of think that process is is now underway and it's starting to happen. So that's the other big concentration in the portfolio is financials. And do you make any distinction between, because I think the investment banking sort of side of them, uh, I've actually been doing exceptionally well like JP Morgan had incredible results I think over the last yeah I believe I'm right with that um correct me if I'm wrong are you focusing more on the retail side or yeah that's right the the investment banking stuff is a little bit it's very pro-cyclical they they they'll, they'll make more money at the top of the market and they'll make no money at the bottom of the market whereas the the commercial side tends to be a little bit more consistent um yeah, but yeah. that's also you know that that mortgage origination and, and lending and and those businesses will pick up too I think as the as the home building cycle picks up. How reliant are they on increases, future increases in interest rates, do you think? Or do, do you think outside of that, it still will be okay? It's funny because you, it's very difficult to visualize what happens with, with financials as interest rates increase because that sounds like it could be a bad thing for them. They tend to make their money in the spread and the spread gets squashed as interest rates get squashed. So it's hard for them to make money without much spread. They need a higher rate and a steeper term structures to sort of make any money out of it. And I think that that is, that is sort of inevitably what must happen as inflation picks up. Yeah, yeah. And um, can we just quickly touch on managing risk? Um, you have both a qualitative and quantitative approach and principles. Can you sort of briefly go through that and how they work? Yeah, this is, um, this is sort of the, it's really the first step in my process because I've, I've blown up enough money of my own over the years to, to sort of decide that I, I don't want to learn any more lessons. I've learned enough lessons in the stock market and I'm, I'm trying not to learn anymore. I wrote a book called Concentrated Investing that came out in 2016. And the thrust of it was we went and talked to value investors who had been in the market 
for 25 years plus and had you know survived and outperformed and tried to learn about how they had achieved that and it became pretty clear to me that it's a number of there are a number of things they're doing one of them is that they're looking for a particular type of business and balance sheet and management team that you can comfortably sit beside for an extended period of time the other thing is that they're not getting too concentrated into any individual name because there's just there's always exogenous existential risk that can come in and destroy an industry. So a good example would be for-profit colleges in the States, which all screened really, really cheaply because they are really good businesses. It's basically selling information. Largely, it was delivered online. But they had this problem where they had one uh, sort of customer, which was the US government, who was paying for all of the, the the students largely who went through who were then saddled with these huge debts and the students were sort of promised that they would get jobs that would justify the debt when they graduated and that didn't happen and it created this um, controversy over here and Obama sort of outlawed it and it destroyed that industry. All of those companies um, basically traded down to, to pennies and then disappeared even though underlying them, they were still reasonably good businesses but it just became untenable for them to survive. China's done the same recently or something similar, I believe. G- GSX are you doing stuff? Is that a similar sort of thing that they've done there? I'm not familiar with it. I haven't followed it. That does sound like China. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but it's definitely happened. Uh, they, they outlawed it, banned it, I, think, I believe, and, and all those stocks then went, they went to zero, basically, because they had no revenue anymore. Yeah, it's scary. It's, it's a, it always, that risk always exists. So you just have to, you have to bear in mind the possibility that you're just totally wrong or the market is completely right. And so the way that I approach it, I just keep reasonably small position sizes. I tend to be sort of 3 or 4% in the portfolio. I try to have some, um, you know, there's a tension between industry diversification, industry concentration. I was saying before, you need some concentration, but, you know, you've got to limit the amount of the book. So I, I tend to, I have no more than about 20% of the book in any, in, in any industry, just because there is always that existential risk. And then you want a healthy balance sheet, um, good cash flow, some evidence that that free cash flow is real. And I, I think that the best evidence for that is some buyback going on. You know, so it's undervalued management's taking advantage of the undervaluation. They have the firepower there to take advantage of the, of the undervaluation. They're buying back stock in a meaningful size. There's real free cash flow. I think when you get all of those things together, and statistically, that's also the case that companies that buy back material amounts of stock do outperform companies that are stock issuers. So all of these things together, just trying not to lose money so much as um, you know, trying to get a reasonable return and trying to take less risk than, than the market does to generate those returns. That's sort of the... That's, that's what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. And when you get a situation such as, you know, um, the government stopping a, a, an industry and it collapsing, so a situation of bad luck or, or something, uh, what, what do you, what's your approach with that? How do you then act based on that information? And if you were, say, invested in something that had exposure to that? You know, I'm, I'm a believer in, I just take the losses when, I recognize that the situation has changed. You, you sort of have to be um, a little bit bloodless about that sort of stuff. It's just the thing that people always get trapped in is they're in something that goes down and they think, I'll just hold on to this until I get what I put into this back as if the market cares about you know, what you stuck into it. You just have to be, you have to ignore all those kind of anchoring biases of where you bought the stock or what the peak was or what the bottom was. The market doesn't care. The situation changes. You have to be out of the position if it's no longer tenable. And this is the thing. In the positions that I put on, I might hold 30 um, in the portfolio. I know that about half of them won't work and about half of them will work. It's just that the ones that don't work, I'm hoping that I've got them close enough to the bottom of their business cycle and the, the balance sheet's strong enough that I won't lose too much money on them. And then the ones that do work will sort of give me better returns that will make up for it. And across all of those moving pieces, you'll generate a little bit more return um, than the risk you take. And it's sort of, it's, it really is sort of uh, 
it's a it's a very small margin for error. So I you take the losses as soon as you sort of recognise that the situation's changed. Yeah, very good advice. I think um, Tobias, this has been this has been great. Um, really enjoyed going through the uh, deep value and uh, acquirers multiple with you. Um, really good to get your insight on the value sort of side. We cover the growth bit quite often here, as you can imagine. There's a lot of people that are in that area, and, and it's it's good to have the other side, especially at this time right now, where I do, you know every, a lot of stuff is very very expensive, even more so than ever before. And you know a lot of those valuations that might be there in the future have been brought forward so much that they probably you know won't move a lot a lot. You know you could you could say for for the next sort of five ten years or whatever that could be something that happens uh, just like Microsoft did. But yeah, my pleasure, Ed, and I couldn't agree more. I think the growth, the time to be really long growth, was in about two thousand fifteen when the spread was really collapsed between the most expensive and the cheapest. You weren't paying up much to buy better businesses. Now the spread is very, very wide and you are being sufficiently compensated to buy the less good businesses to sort of be more of a handicapper. And so my, I think the next five or 10 years will be more of a, uh, like a, a value type market where fundamental analysis will matter a little bit more. If anybody wants to see, uh, so I have a free screener on my website, which is acquirersmultiple.com. You can go there and look in the the cheapest 30 out of the top 1,000. I also run two funds. Uh, One is called the Acquirers Fund, and the ticket for that is ZIG. That's the mid-cap and large-cap fund. And then I run another one called the Roundhill Acquirers Deep Value Fund, which is small and micro, and the ticket for that is DEEP, D-E-E-P. And uh, that's an ETF, is it? They're both ETFs, yeah. Both ETFs, yeah. That's that's great. And so um, we'll have the link to your website in the show notes, which um, I believe you can get to Tobias's books from there as well. That's right. They're all linked up on the site. That's great. And then where can I go um, on Twitter to find you, follow your insights, or is there an email they can? Yeah, so Twitter, Twitter. I have, a, I have a, my handle is Greenbacked. It's a funny spelling. It's G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. I think you can just search my name to Tobias Carlisle. It should, it should pull up the Twitter handle. I'm reasonably active. I post a few times a day, but less active than I used to be. Yeah. Um, that's brilliant, Tobias. Yeah, thanks very much. And uh, great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ed. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.